Chapter Thirteen, Part One of the Autobiography of Moncure Conway. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Margaret Espayat. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume One by Moncure D. Conway. Chapter Thirteen, Part One. Concerts and Theaters. Mr. and Mrs. Jared Sparks. The Longfellows, J. R. Lowell, Dr. Palfrey, Reverend Dr. Andrews Norton, The Plymouth Rock Myth, Theodore Parker, Professor Converse Francis, Professor G. R. Noyes, The Unitarian Clergy, Emerson at Divinity Hall, His Influence on Students. The three hundred dollars I carried to Cambridge, which would have been affluence in my Methodist circuit, swiftly diminished in value. Some half-starved tastes were awakened in me. I heard for the first time symphonies of Beethoven. In Boston Museum Theatre I witnessed the inimitable comic acting of Warren. Footnote. I have seen all the noted comic actors of my time in America, but never the equal of Warren as an artist in that line. With a facial expression and some slight movement, such as turning around, he could, without a word, convulse an audience. Burton was admirable, but not so original as Warren. End of footnote. Here were new kingdoms, but with ticket offices at their frontiers. The most momentous experience was the first opera. It was at the Howard Athenaeum, then the grand place, and I was invited by the Longfellows to a seat in their box. This first opera was Sonambula. The second was The Barber of Seville, but the third, oh, the third, it was dear Mrs. Sparks, wife of the historian, who invited me to Don Giovanni. She had never seen that opera, and I fear could not enjoy it because she had taken me, a sort of protege, to what she described to her husband on our return as a travesty of Byron's Don Juan, and quite as immoral. A startling thing to me was the discovery in Mozart's melodies of several hymn-tunes. The charm of Sontag's singing, the music, especially the minuet, held me under a spell. I never got free from it, and to this day regard Don Giovanni as worth all other operas together. My love of concerts and theatres requiring economy, I joined four other impecunious divinity students informing a vegetarian table. Our only married student, Fowler and his wife, were glad to help support themselves by supplying us in their house. There were half a dozen of us at table. Fowler was the only spiritualist in our college, and the rest of us represented rationalistic phases of faith, each in an individual way. So our table did not lack spice. Jared Sparks, the historian, was president of Harvard College when I arrived, but he soon resigned and was succeeded by Rev. Dr. James Walker. Mr. Sparks had long given up his ministerial profession to the great benefit of American history. I had been especially confided to his kindness by Drs. Burnap and Dewey, and was admitted to a sort of intimacy in his family. He remains in my memory among the most charming personalities I have known. Seated there in his library, with his historical documents, 
he was the ideal scholar and statesman. His noble countenance had the candor and simplicity of a child, and though grave almost to melancholy, a sweet smile now and then played over his features, and his gentle voice was winning. In reflecting on my acquaintance with Jared Sparks, I always remember what Dr. Oliver Wendell Holmes said to me some years before his death. You and I have spent many of the best years of our lives merely clearing theological rubbish out of our paths. Because I was so occupied still in my twenty-first year, I was disabled from availing myself of my opportunities for gaining from the patriarch of American history the knowledge for which I had to search long in later life. I remember, however, that he repeated to me a suggestion of Thomas Paine to Jefferson, that Christ and his disciples were modeled on the sun and zodiac. Indeed, it was from Jared Sparks that I first learned that Thomas Paine was to be respected. Mrs. Sparks was a lady of culture and originality. She continued her evening receptions after her husband's presidency ceased, and in her house the best people were met. It was there that I met Arthur Hugh Clough, the English poet, charmed across the Atlantic by Emerson. His figure was unique as his poetry, for there is but one Clough, and another is impossible. Someone at the time told me that there had been some doubt as to the pronunciation of the name, and on his first appearance Mrs. Sparks had greeted him as Mr. Clough. When he was taking leave, she repeated this, and Clough, after going to the door, returned and said to her in good humor but with emphasis, Clough, madam, Clough. This handsome blonde Englishman often passed Divinity Hall on his way to visit the Nortons at Shady Hill, just back of us, and he seemed to make more classic our pretty avenue. The body of Taberna Wallach, lent me by Emerson, was touched with melancholy, but Clough's face was always serene. Had I to describe the Cambridge I knew in a phrase, it would be as the town of beautiful homes. I suppose my coming so far from my relatives, and my parting with Virginia for love of religious and political liberty, led some to invite me to their homes. Among these the Longfellows. I find in my notebook, March 13, 1853, spent the evening with Longfellow. Oh, what an event! I found him every way worthy of his works, with a sweet and smiling family around him. A pleasant young English lady was there, Miss Davies. Topics, modern authors, personalities of Boston, etc., and mainly of Virginia and slavery, about which the English lady was anxious. This is a wretched little note about my introduction to Craigie House, and across all the years my memory is better. For I remember the grace and graciousness of Mrs. Longfellow, and thinking that she was the lady described by the poet in Hyperion. She possessed a peculiar kind of beauty, which I think inspired the familiar engraving of Angeline, and a most engaging expression of sincerity and of thoughtfulness for others. When any one was conversing with her, the intentness of her dark eyes, as if she listened with them, and the humility with which, after a little silence, she expressed an opinion always intelligent, never conventional, impressed me that first evening. I longed for her friendship. 
She loved to walk on the large swards fronting Craigie House, and it was a picture to see this tall lady among her trees and flowers. She had much quiet humor, and I remember her quaint description of old Mrs. Craigie, from whom they purchased the house, and whom some tried to persuade to have her trees tarred to protect them from the caterpillars, which also invaded her neighbors. She refused to be so cruel to the caterpillars, declaring them our fellow worms. She was the poet's second wife, but the difference in their ages was compensated by his possessing the greater youthfulness of spirit. He was quick and vivacious in his movements, and was even gay at times, though I never remember him laughing aloud. Her brother, Tom Appleton, a cosmopolitan wit, used often to pass his Sunday evenings at Craigie House, and I had a standing invitation to pass Sunday evening there. It was a delight to listen to Tom Appleton's talk, and I had often to indulge in my Virginian liability to loud laughter, I and the children, but Mrs. Longfellow only beamed her amusement, and the poet must have sympathetically caught her serene way. At that time Longfellow was the professor of poetry in Harvard College. Some of the professional students availed themselves of the general college studies, and I joined the classes of Agassiz in science, of Bernard Rolke in German, and of Longfellow. With the poet we went critically through Goethe's Faust. It was charming to listen to Longfellow's reading. Even German became musical in his voice, and it was a fine experience to witness the simplicity and elevation with which he interpreted for us, without prudery, the whole human nature of the poem, as well as its frame of folklore and mythology. Longfellow's knowledge of folklore, antiquities, superstitions, Scandinavian, English, German, French, Spanish, Italian, American, Aboriginal, was universal, and, had he not eclipsed his learning by the popularity of his poetry, he might have founded a chair for such studies. Longfellow's personality was potent among us. His modesty, his amiable man-to-man -man manners toward the young, the absence of airs or mannerisms, his transparent veracity of mind and respect for all sincere opinions were very engaging. He was the universally beloved. I heard Lowell's address at the unveiling of Longfellow's bust in Westminster Abbey, and although every one present seemed to feel that the perfect word had been spoken, I felt that with all the elegance of the eulogy it did not, perhaps none could, convey the characteristics that made Longfellow's personality finer than his poems. Footnote. Joseph Jefferson, the great actor, tells me that when dining with Robert Browning in London, 1877, the poet said Longfellow was as charming a gentleman as he had ever met. Browning's enthusiasm for a man whose poetry was so remote from his own impressed me, said the actor. End of footnote. Now that I have mentioned Lowell, it may here be added that at the time he was generally known only by his Biglow papers and his Fable for Critics. They were unique in American literature because genuine New England products. Meeting him in later years, I received an impression that he did not like to be alluded to as author of the Biglow papers, 
but it is only his works written under that same inspiration that strike me as possessing originality. Mrs. Charles Lowell, his widowed sister-in-law, introduced me to Lowell, and he received me pleasantly. But there was a certain provincialism about him, which I suppose irritated my own southern provincialism, and perhaps both my lingering Methodism and heretical enthusiasm prevented my getting very far with Lowell. Despite his long beard, pointed mustache, and wavy hair parted in the middle, in those days suggestive of foreign style, his look, accent, shrewdness, all recalled the Yankee conventionalized in southern prejudice. Although this son of an eminent Unitarian minister had depicted so felicitously, in his fable for critics, Emerson, Parker, and other leaders of thought, he did not seem to have any knowledge of their thoughts, nor much interest in the great problems that filled the air with discussion. He took me with him to a beautiful pond near Cambridge, where we had a fine bath, and showed himself an admirable swimmer. Lowell was entertaining in his talk, but in his literary criticisms dwelt too much on certain neat phrases. I had enthusiasm for Robert Browning, but Lowell showed no interest in Browning, and shocked me by echoing the commonplaces about his obscurity. I own, he said, a copy of Sordello, and anybody may have it who will put his hand upon his heart and say he understands it. I have not read it, I replied, but what is it about? Placing his hand over his heart, he answered, I don't know. I presently read Sordello, and found it obscure because of my own ignorance of the epoch in Italian history with which it is interwoven. But there are enough clear and profound passages in the poem, so I thought, to excite something more than jest. Mr. Buckingham, the admirable editor to whom Lowell's Biglow papers were addressed, was passing serene years in his pleasant home with his daughter, and he could not have better company than this bright and gracious young lady. At an edge of our Divinity Hall Park resided Dr. John Gorham Palfrey, formerly a Unitarian minister and a professor in our Divinity School. His interest in the anti-slavery cause had carried him into political life and into Congress. His radical attitude in Congress cost him his seat, and he resumed his historical researches. Dr. Palfrey, still an active man, though his children were grown, was very attractive. He was an impressive speaker, a scholar, with fine powers of conversation, and rather rationalistic. He had long set the anti-slavery cause above all theology. The largest homestead in Cambridge, one may call it a park, was Shady Hill, belonging to the Norton family. The Reverend Dr. Andrews Norton resided there with his unmarried daughters Jane and Grace and his son Charles Elliot Norton, now, in 1904, professor of fine arts in Harvard University. Dr. Norton had been the chief professor in the Divinity School and wrote the textbook of conservative Unitarianism, namely, The Evidences of Christianity. Being on the side of the enemy, I did not then appreciate the force and learning of this work. The venerable doctor was a favorite theme of legend in our college. He had the reputation of being very aristocratic. 
some student invented a fable of the leading Unitarians entering heaven in a group, with characteristic remarks. Dr. Ware said, It is better than we deserve. The elder Channing, This is another proof of the dignity of human nature. Dr. Ezra Gannett, There must be some mistake, and hurries out. Dr. Norton murmurs, It is a very miscellaneous crowd. Perhaps this idea arose from the old gentleman's historic genealogy, his reputed wealth, elegant park, and the distinguished appearance of his children. His daughters were sometimes seen walking about their grounds, which adjoined our college park. They were beautiful, and spoken of as the evidences of Christianity. Once, when the two elder were preparing for a visit to Europe, Grace remaining with their father, Dr. Palfrey said to Dr. Norton, Alas, what will you do when the evidences of Christianity leave you? Ah, I will be saved by grace. Dr. Palfrey advised me to pay my respects to Dr. Norton, and gave me a note of introduction. I did so with trepidation, as he was believed to regard rationalism intolerantly. Browning's Old King Sitting in the Sun came to my mind when I beheld this picturesque scholar in his library, with his halo of silken white hair, his classic features, his clear soft eye. With my anti-slavery views, Dr. Palfrey's note may have made him acquainted, but as most of the old Unitarians idolized Daniel Webster and opposed the abolitionists, I supposed that the aristocratic doctor was on that side, too. To my surprise, he said early in our conversation that the majority of the Washington politicians seemed to ignore not only the principles of freedom, but even all sense of honor. No compacts were respected, and truth was disregarded. Those who refer to the history of the slave power at that time, and its steady corruption of northern congressmen, will recognize the weight of Dr. Norton's words. I was charmed by the old scholar's candor. In speaking of transcendentalism, he made a remark to the effect that what to thinkers, I understood a reference to Emerson, were high ideas of individuality and self-reliance, tended to become in ordinary minds boundless self-conceit. When Professor Charles Norton was bravely denouncing in 1898 the inglorious war which the United States was about to wage against helpless Spain, I gave an address in Boston before the Free Religious Association, in which I related the above anecdote of his father. I afterwards received a letter from Professor Norton, telling me that it had been the custom of his father in their family prayers to utter a special petition against the influence of Theodore Parker's unbelief. But one day he read a report of a sermon delivered by Parker in Boston on the betrayal of freedom by Webster, and from that time there was no more about Parker in the family prayers. When the elder Channing visited Europe, he went to see Mrs. Hemans, whose poems were popular in America, in her home near Wintermere. He spoke of her hymn on The Landing of the Pilgrim Fathers in New England, and told her that he had heard it sung by a great multitude on the spot where the pilgrims landed. But when, in answer to her questions, he was compelled to inform her that the coast described in her hymn as stern and rock-bound 
was without any rocks, she burst into tears. In my southern home, where my mother used to sing that hymn, I too had nursed the heroic legend, and when I made my reverent pilgrimage to Plymouth Rock, a cruel disillusion awaited me. My friend Andrew Russell showed me near the low beach a small stone a yard or so long, and one slightly larger in front of Pilgrim Hall, the tradition being that the two together had made the original holy rock. It was as mythical as the holy stone of Mecca. It was to be yet a good many years before I discovered the illusions investing the pilgrims themselves. I credited them with great men around me, whom they would have banished or put to death. Admirers of Theodore Parker sometimes claimed that he was the typical flower out of the prickly Puritan stem. And, after I had come to find that no opportunity of hearing him must be lost, there appeared to me some truth in this. When he sat in front of the organ while the choir was singing, there was a certain severity about his thin lips, a sternness and pallor on his face and bald head, which suggested the aspect of the Puritan. When he opened his lips, his gentle voice wafted to us lilies and roses. In nearly every sermon of Parker's, there was some delicately humorous passage which sent a smile or even a ripple of laughter through his eager assembly, but it was only some great inhumanity or injustice that brought forth his sarcasm, and that raised no smile. Theodore Parker's rejection of miracles recorded in the Bible was not the result of skeptical tendencies, but of critical studies. The last time I ever saw him was at Framingham, where the Anti-Slavery Society met every summer in a grove. During an interval in the speaking, I walked with him to the end of the grove, where we sat upon the grass. I was preparing a sermon on miracles, and noted some of his talk on that subject. He said it was difficult to define miracle. He recognized a sort of miracle sense in man, who feels that mystic part of him with legends and fables, as a man who cannot get bread will eat grass rather than starve. But when man has grown so far as to find God in nature and in the deep intuitions of his own heart, the miraculous fables will be extinguished like rushlights under a dawn. While I loved Theodore Parker and honored him as the standard-bearer of religious liberty and derived instruction from his discourses, I received no important aid from his philosophy or his theology. Indeed, none of our class in the divinity school adopted Parkerism, but we all felt, and I suspect our professors felt, that Parker was defending our right to enter on an unfettered ministry. We unanimously resolved to ask him to give the sermon at our graduation. When one or two of us conveyed to Parker this invitation, we were received in his library, where he sat at his desk. The conspicuous musket borne by his grandfather at Lexington was in curious contrast with the tenderness which this captain in a nobler revolution displayed for his antagonists. He was moved by our invitation and after some moments of silence said, I should rejoice to do it, but the professors have already been embarrassed at the reputation of your class for radicalism, 
and this would embarrass them further. Get someone less notorious. After some discussion, we took his advice, and the address was given by Rev. Dr. Furness of Philadelphia. After us came a class which, without consulting Parker, invited him to deliver their address. The faculty, having refused consent, and the young men to elect another, the address that year was an eloquent silence. Parker really brought a sort of judgment day among the Unitarians, many of whom were not conscious of the extent to which they had deviated from the old standards. He told me that Dr. Converse Francis, our professor of ecclesiastical history, had visited him after his first heretical manifesto, and the following colloquy took place. "'I cannot go along with you, Parker. What's the trouble?' "'Oh, you reject the supernatural in Christianity.' "'Do you believe in it?' "'Certainly.' "'Do you believe that the fish came up with a penny in its mouth?' "'Well, no, not that.' "'Do you believe that a fig tree withered because Jesus cursed it?' certainly not. Do you believe that a man was brought to life four days after his death? I do not. Will you please select some particular miracle in the New Testament which you do believe? Oh, I accept the supernatural element. With that, said Parker, Dr. Francis went off. And how many preachers are in that condition? End of chapter 13, part 1